Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Tuesday, August 10th. I'm Carolina Sarasa, and these are today's headlines. In a stunning reversal in battle, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announcing his resignation following accusations of sexual harassment. Major moves on Capitol Hill, the Senate voting to pass a $1 trillion infrastructure bill. The next stop, a potential rocky road in the House. And with ICU beds occupied from coast to coast and a sharp rise in the number of pediatric patients being treated for COVID-19, the battle over masks in schools is getting more heated. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin with a political shock in New York. The state's governor, Andrew Cuomo, has resigned all this as a number of women, 11, are accusing him of sexual harassment. His decision to step down was announced as more and more members of his own party, even the president, were calling for him to step down. Let's listen to his words this morning. And wasting energy on distractions is the last thing that state government should be doing. And I cannot be the cause of that. New York tough means New York loving. And I love New York. And I love you. And everything I have ever done has been motivated by that love. And I would never want to be unhelpful in any way. And I think that given the circumstances, the best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to governing. Cuomo's resignation came just days after New York's Attorney General Letitia James released the results of an investigation that alleges he sexually harassed at least 11 women. He will be succeeded by Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, who will now become the first female governor in New York state history. Meanwhile, in Washington, President Biden is celebrating a victory today. This as the Senate passed a $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill after months and months of negotiations. Edwin P.T. is live in Washington, D.C. with the latest. Edwin. That's right, Carolina. As it was expected, with a vote of 69 to 30, the Senate approved moments ago the roughly $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill to improve the nation's roads, bridges, pipes, airports, and internet connection. This follows weeks of heated debates between Republicans and the Biden administration, but in the end, 18 Republican senators sided with Democrats to pass the proposal. And even though it must still clear the House where some Democrats recently raised concerns that the measure falls short for them, the Senate outcome moves one step closer to delivering President Biden's first major bipartisan win. For that reason, Biden paused his vacation in Delaware and came back to Washington to celebrate this historic moment. This is what the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said before the vote. Take a listen. We want to cut taxes for American families. We want to create millions of jobs while tackling the climate crisis. And we want to pay for it by making corporations and the wealthy finally pay their fair share. After we pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill this morning, senators should expect to vote to proceed to the budget resolution. 
and we will begin the process for debating amendments shortly thereafter. Democrats are prepared to move quickly and decisively through the amendment process so we can finish what we set out to do before the end of the work period. Once approved by the House, this will mark the most significant investment in the country since 2009. The bill concludes more than $110 billion to replace and repair roads and $66 billion to repair railroads. According to the White House, this investment in transit is the biggest in more than 50 years. Now the bill heads to the House, where Speaker Nancy Pelosi said the vote won't happen until the Senate approves the $3.5 trillion spending bill that includes, among other things, a pathway for citizenship for over 6 million undocumented immigrants. But Democrats have now released the framework for that trillion-dollar reconciliation package, and the Senate will start working on the final text of the bill. It could take weeks before the Senate approves the spending bill, and if Republicans make it harder to move, to move it forward, they could use the reconciliation process to approve it by a simple majority. Reporting live in Washington, back to you, Caro. Thank you for the live report, Edwin Pitti from Washington, D.C. And now turning to the West Coast, dangerous fire conditions continue as wildfires rage in California, wreaking havoc on several communities. The Dixie Fire, now the second largest in state's history. Meanwhile, hundreds of structures have been destroyed, and even veteran firefighters say this is really difficult territory. Andrea Linares has the latest. The Dixie Fire once again exploding in size, now the second largest wildfire in California's history. That blaze, still only 22% contained, consuming more than 482,000 acres so far. The impact of this fire is pretty tremendous, pretty tragic. Firefighters racing to contain the spread. Left behind a lot of stuff, uh, fires ravaged through everything. More people are being told to evacuate as the Dixie Fire now threatens 14,000 structures, already destroying more than 600, including homes and the entire town of Greenville, since it started nearly a month ago. But thousands more remain at risk. The Dixie Fire is one of 11 major wildfires in California as of Monday, with more than 9,500 firefighters trying to battle the flames. Thousands of families have been ordered to leave their homes and others have lost everything. Further north, the McFarlane fire raging, only 21% contained as aircraft reinforced containment lines with retardant. Not far in Nevada County, California, the river fire is also burning, flames destroying nearly 100 structures, more than 60 of them were homes. As containment on the river fire rises, firefighters continue to mop up hot spots and some residents are being allowed back into their communities. This father and son pressure washing fire retardant off their property. It was quite the mess as we drove up. There were a lot of burned homes just right below us here and surprisingly just up at the top, another one above us. All this unfolding as the United Nations sounds the alarm on the global climate crisis in its strongly worded climate panel report, saying it is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean and land. The report published today echoes the same messages with much higher urgency. Climate change is already more visible and the emissions have grown more, than, more rapidly than we ever expected in 1979. 
The report suggesting the only way to avoid catastrophic change is to make deep cuts to greenhouse gas emissions and remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Overall, the situation out west is quite dire, and yet another heat wave is looming this week, which means conditions are not expected to improve much. Additionally, the lack of rain is also threatening water supply. The largest reservoirs in the country are falling to record low levels. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, EU News. Thank you, Andrea, for that report. Meanwhile, FEMA will be testing its national national emergency alert systems on Wednesday afternoon, but no need to be alarmed. The agency said it's just part of regular testing. FEMA says the test has been planned for more than a year. Wednesday at 2.20 p.m. Eastern, the emergency alert test will be sent to TVs and radios. It will last about one full minute. A wireless alert will also be sent to those who have opted in for other ser phone services to receive a text message. The seven-day average of, in, of vaccinations in the U.S. is at nearly 600,000, while more than half of the population is now fully inoculated. But cases in children continue to rise. The American Academy of Pediatrics pleading with pharmaceutical companies to speed up vaccination trials for kids. Lorraine Casares has the latest. Nearly 167 million people in the U.S. now fully inoculated against COVID-19, the country finally surpassing the 50% mark for COVID vaccinations. More than 71% of adults now with at least one dose. But kids are struggling. The American Academy of Pediatrics calling on the FDA to authorize vaccines for 5 to 11-year-olds as quickly as possible. This as the surge in pediatric cases intensifies. More than 90 54,000 being reported and children being sent to the hospital at a rate of almost four times higher than a month ago. We need to be approaching um, uh, the trials and the authorization of the COVID vaccine for children with the same urgency that we did with adults. Um, just as it's a serious disease in adults, it can be a very serious disease in children. As the school year begins, Dr. Anthony Fauci suggesting vaccines should be a requirement for all teachers nationwide. On Monday saying, we are in a critical situation now. We've had 615,000 plus deaths and we are in a major surge now as we're going into the fall, into the school season. This is a very serious business. We would wish that people would see why it's so important to get vaccinated. Meanwhile, the fight over masks in schools intensifies. In Florida, the governor now Parents threatening to withhold right pay to from school officials that go against his well mandate and enforced mask wearing. This comes as Florida is seeing a major surge in COVID-19, uh, registering more than 134,000 new cases last week, an all-time high for the state over a seven-day span. The state's Department of Health reporting the positivity rate for children under the age of 12 is nearly 21 percent. The superintendent of the state's largest districts responding, saying, at no point shall I allow my decision to be influenced by a threat to my paycheck, a small price to pay considering the gravity of this issue and the potential impact to the health and well-being of our students and dedicated employees. In Texas, Austin and Dallas also defying their governor. If we don't do anything, it could go as many as 2,000 new cases every day by the end of the month. So I felt it was time to step in, even though I may get in trouble. 
and uh, need to step in and, and just have some courage and make a decision that I think is in the best interest of the district. It's not about the government. It's not personal, you know. I get along with him and he's appointed me to a couple of commissions. We just happen to have a healthy disagreement uh, on the perspective here. And my message is I'm trying to take care of the safety and health of our students. And he's got a big job to do. And so on this matter, we don't agree. And on the topic of vaccines and young children, Pfizer has not applied to the FDA for emergency use authorization in kids 5 to 11 yet. The company says they're planning to do so by the end of September, and that would make them ready to give out shots by the end of December 2021, uh, and maybe a few, a few weeks earlier than that. So that means that we're still uh, quite a few months away from this even being possible. Carolina, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that live report. And with Florida reporting the highest number of infections nationwide, local leaders are having to face a new crisis. And to understand more, we are joined by Broward County, Florida Mayor Stephen Geller. Welcome to you, News Mayor. Thank you, Carolina. It's a pleasure to be here. Likewise, Mayor. So let's start with some trends in Broward. In the past week, we have seen COVID cases rise significantly as well as people being sent to the hospitals as the number of COVID patients in Broward ICUs. What do you see as the biggest COVID challenge in your county right now? Well, the problem is that it's uncontrolled. Let me just give you some numbers. On July 5th, there were 183 cases of COVID reported. July 26th, it was 1,013 and August 5th, it was 2059. The slope is going like this. Uh, it, it's horrible uh, what's happening. Um, if you look at one of the best ways of measuring numbers of how bad COVID is, the number of new cases per 100,000, it should be below 10, below Below two is considered green, two to five orange, five, uh, I'm sorry, two to five yellow, five to 10 orange, over 10 is red. Uh, June, June 15th, we were at 5.7. July 1st, we were at over 14. July 15th, we were 37. At the end of July, we were already at 88. And as of Friday, it was 118. Remember, over 10 is considered code red. And we were at 118 cases per 100,000. The numbers are just going up dramatically. I talk to the hospitals on a regular basis. Um, they're not capable of dealing with everything. They're just, it, there's, you have two problems. You have the problem of space. Just as an example, at the Memorial Healthcare um, District, mm -hmm. the South Broward, they had 42 uh, ICU bed capacity. Last I heard, they were at 58 ICU. They're right. not turning people away, but they've had to convert uh, meeting spaces, uh, classrooms into uh, ICU space. And what bothers me the most are the pediatric numbers. And just on that, um, Mayor, talking about children, let's talk about yes, schools. Yesterday, a spokesperson for Florida mm -hmm. Governor Ron DeSantis said that the state might withhold salaries from local school board officials if they implement a mandate on mask wearing. All this as Broward health officials have been pointing to growing numbers of COVID infection in children 
What is your message to the governor right now? I am unhappy with the governor's decisions the uh, on COVID. The governor and the Republican legislature have consistently been telling the federal government, don't do one size fits all decisions because what works in New York doesn't work in North Dakota. Okay, so I would hope they would be consistent. When we tell the governor, governor, what works in Bradford County with a population of 28,000 doesn't work in Broward County with a population of 2 million, they ignore that. So I would ask if they be consistent. If the governor is not willing to do statewide mask orders, that's his prerogative. He has broad powers, but let us in local government make local government decisions because Dade and Broward County, that's Miami-Dade and Broward, which are the two largest counties in the state, we're leading the nation in number of new hospitalizations. Let us react locally to local issues. And I respect the governor, but uh, he doesn't have all powers in the state, which he seems to think he does. He regularly overrides local government. And just on that, can Broward County, what can Broward County do to push back against the governor's executive actions right now? You say every county is different. So what has to be done in your county for us to finally move forward and see the cases start to decline again, like we were seeing a couple of weeks and months before? Well, you, there's two separate issues. One is the school board, and I'm not a school board member. Um, that they're run through elected officials. But I believe the school board is meeting today to decide whether or not they're going to pass a mask mandate, regardless of what the governor says. They've already voted to do that. They're meeting today to see whether or not they're going to reconsider. Uh, at the county level, we have put in mask mandates in all county buildings, but you know we currently would be violating both Florida statute that was passed last session and the governor's order if we did any mask mandates other than in buildings that we own and control. Again, it's just unacceptable. And if I can tell you one more number about pediatrics, which really bothers me, um, at just Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital, which is just one of the hospitals here, the Children's Hospital, it's the largest. There were 240 pediatric visits to the emergency room in July. And was, what was worse is on July 28th, when I got the information, it was only 190. So in the last three or four days of the month, it went from 190 to 240. The fact that there are children who can't protect themselves mm -hmm. going to the emergency room, pediatric emergency room, is a problem. So I keep telling people, protect yourself, your friends, your family, your community, your country, do the patriotic thing and get vaccinated. And if all of that won't persuade you, protect the children by getting vaccinated. And Governor, Please let them wear masks and require teachers to wear masks. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mayor Geller. Thank you so much for being with us today, for your insights, and hopefully people can hear that message and, like you said, do the patriotic thing. Thank you so much. Carolina, always a pleasure. Thank you.
And now to cruise lines and the battle over vaccine mandates on board ships. This after a federal judge rules in favor of Norwegian Cruise Line, allowing them to require proof of vaccination for everyone on board. Grecia Lastra has more details. This morning, a new turn in the battle over vaccines for cruises out of Florida. A federal judge saying Norwegian Cruise Line can now require Florida passengers to provide proof of vaccination before boarding, going directly against Governor Ron DeSantis's orders. I think that this is a victory for the cruise industry, at least for now. DeSantis has said cruise lines would face a $5,000 fine per passenger if they defied his order. This ruling means for now Norwegian would not have to pay those fines, but it's unclear what it means for other cruise lines. Norwegian, which is preparing to set sail from Florida for the first time on Sunday, says all guests and crew must be fully vaccinated at least two weeks prior to departure and before boarding. The cruise line will test each passenger. Guests must bring their original vaccination document to the port. And unvaccinated children, even those under 12, cannot board. The cruise lines have to do whatever they can to make sure we're safe. And they can't go through another episode like they did last year when we had ships stuck out at sea with people with COVID on them. Just days ago, with the Delta variant surging, Carnival, Princess and Holland America announced they are making masks mandatory for all passengers, regardless of vaccination status. This is Grecia Lastra reporting for U News. Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador and U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris spoke on Monday about migration, the battle against COVID-19, and the need to improve Central American economies. The White House said the two leaders discussed ongoing cooperation to address irregular immigration to the shared U.S.-Mexican border and agreed to focus on bolstering Central American economies through investment in agriculture and climate resilience. The U.S. Vice President also told López Obrador that Washington was committed to sending additional doses of COVID-19 vaccines to Mexico on top of the 4 million doses already sent. Meanwhile, according to recently filed court documents, unaccompanied migrant children are reporting poor conditions at a temporary facility in Pecos, Texas. Those conditions include long stays at the facility, undercooked food, and long waits for medical care. This is the latest in a series of issues raised by children at these facilities overseen by the Department of Health and Human Services. The facility in Pecos is meant to be temporary, but another teen said a sibling has been there for more than six days. No word from HHS about that facility. And even with an increase in deportations, thousands of immigrants continue to cross the border day and night. In the city of McAllen, activists are demanding that Texas authorities stop sending the military and blaming migrants for the surge of COVID cases. Jorge Hernandez has more details. Attacks on migrants and racist language are on the rise at the border, according to these activists who protested to stop these alleged abuses, which they say are encouraged by authorities. They formed a human chain in front of the bus center in one of the shelters to denounce the increase in anti-immigrant discourse and COVID cases in Texas. We are very disappointed that very anti-immigrant language is being used to blame migrants for the COVID-19. 
The activists say that Texas Governor Greg Abbott is the main driver of this anti-immigrant wave, and they also accuse local authorities, Democrats and Republicans alike. We all deserve dignity and we all deserve a better life for our families. This resident who identified herself as an activist came to question the protester. If my daughter-in-law wants to come back to bring her child to school, they're going to ask her at the airport for a COVID test, right? Then why can't all these people come COVID positive? It is estimated that during July some 200,000 migrants crossed the border to apply for asylum. Recently, a source confirmed to Univision that at least 20% are COVID-19 positive. The buses with migrants continued arriving at the two buildings rented as shelters by Catholic charities and at tents installed in Al Saldua's park. Reported by Francisco Cobos in McAllen, Texas, this is Jorge Hernandez, U News. Now back in March, a one-year-old girl was carried from the, her small town in Honduras in the hopes of a better life here in the U.S. Now that little girl is once again back home in Central America. Her journey is highlighting the personal story of those young and old who continue to try to make their way, their way to U.S.-Mexico border only to be sent back. Genesis Viera has more details. I cry with happiness because now I have her with me and I know she is fine. Only a few hours have passed since the U.S. government and Honduran officials returned Mirna to her mother's arms along with her siblings. It was very emotional when I looked at her, even more so when they gave her to me and I hugged her and I felt the emotion because she is back with me. I thought she was going to be upset. On March 15th, at only eight months, this baby left this village in the arms of Juan Lopez, the man with whom her mother had a new relationship who adopted her and her two brothers. He told me that the crossing was easy and we decided that he would take the girl and once he was there, he would send for me. Both of them thought that taking the baby would make it easier to enter the United States. However, on April 20th, when her husband crossed and turned himself in, U.S. immigration authorities separated them because he could not prove that he was a biological father of the child. I don't know if he was deported. I only know that they sent him back to Mexico. And once there, he sought help and they took him to a shelter. And from there, he is trying to see if they will help him cross to the other side. In this town, there are a few jobs, and this family, like thousands of others, have hopes of a better life if they can send their children away, although Mirna regrets it. I would not send her again with anyone, only with me. At such a young age, Mirna does not know that she is a part of a group of almost 4,000 minors who were repatriated from Mexico and the United States in the first seven months of 2021. Reported by Claudia Mendoza in Santa Barbara, Honduras, Genesis Vieira for U News. More of U News after the short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. That would essentially put an end to the longest war in U.S. history. This is interior of a stash house that we found in this right along today. State authorities recommend avoiding them at night. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. 
And now to Mexico City, where a legendary temple has appeared in one of the world's most famous plazas. Ana de Mendoza explains why. It is being built in Socalo, in the heart of Mexico, on a metal structure, and will be painted in its original colors from half a millennium ago. This is the first time in modern history the splendor of the Templo Mayor, main temple, will be able to be admired in three dimensions. Esta pirámide que representa this pyramid represents the resurgence, the reminder of these 500 years of resistance. Mexico City's Secretary of Culture explains that this is the best way they found to commemorate the 500th birthday of the nation's capital, which began its own chapter after the Spanish took over of the great Aztec city of Tenochtitlan. It is a reminder of our history, the pride we feel. Here, unlike other pre-Hispanic cities, after the arrival of the Spaniards, everything in the city was destroyed, and the stones were being used to construct new buildings. The main temple, or Wey Teocali, was the tallest in Tenochtitlan, 150 feet high, and was dedicated to the main Mexica gods. They teach us about things about our past that we did not know before. And although the founder of the archaeological project for the main temple considered this mega model a showpiece and a useless expense, since the real remains are just a few meters away, the enthusiasm and curiosity displayed by visitors is impossible to hide. Se they found that here they were gods themselves, owners of these lands, and these pyramids so big that I would die to at least see. Muchas veces la imaginación Many times the imagination requires the image to be able to appreciate its dimensions. The replica of the temple, which is one-third the size of the original, will be ready on August 13th and will remain open until the 29th. A reminder, if only for a few days, of the majesty of these lands before the bloody Spanish conquest. The culture is still alive. Reported by Jessica Cermeño in Mexico City, Ana de Mendoza, U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.